The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. I'm alone and I'm driving. Welcome back. This is Nature of Business, and I'm your host, Chrissy Coughlin. Thank you for joining us on this fine Wednesday. We are very fortunate uh, to have Fiona Wilson on the line with us. Fiona is Assistant Professor of Strategy, Social Entrepreneurship, and Sustainability at the Whittemore School of Business and Economics at the University of New Hampshire. And she joined the business school in fall of 2011, and previously she uh, spent nine years on the faculty at Simmons School of Management in Boston. And she also has ample corporate experience for 15 years she worked in the corporate sector which we'll talk a little bit about welcome Fiona Thank you, Chrissy. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Um, so we're, I'm so excited to talk about your work. It's so fascinating to me and what you're doing, and it's going to be particularly uh, fun for our listeners to get a um, perspective from an academic who's also been in the business world. <laughs> so <laughs> why don't we start off with uh, a little bit more about you and um, your c- career trajectory and, and your transition from the corporate world to academia. Sure, sure. So, you know, I started out my career, as you can probably tell, I'm not originally from uh, the New England area, but I've been working hard on my uh, New England accent for a couple of decades now. Um, But I grew up in the United Kingdom, and I started my career working for Ogilvy and Mather, um, which is one of the world's leading advertising agencies. Um, And worked, you know, had the privilege there working on major consumer brands, uh, companies like Guinness Beer, American Express, Michelin Tires, Reebok, um, and really helped those companies think about their strategic marketing and, and how to grow their business. Um, and I also um, spent some time on what we call the client side. Uh, I was VP of marketing for CMGI, which is a, was, was a company based in Andover, Mass. It was one of the large internet um, incubators, internet holding companies, and venture capital companies in the dot-com era. Um, and, you know, I had a wonderful 15-year career working for those kinds of organizations. And I loved the creativity, I loved the innovation, and I loved the pace of business. Mm-hmm. But I think like many young women, and, and the research bears this out, you know, I was I left, was left at the end of many years sort of feeling a little bit hollow um, about the sort of lack of the contributions I had felt I'd made to the world, especially to the world's kind of burgeoning problems. Um, you know, I could see I'd helped make a lot of money for the shareholders of those companies, but, but what else had I really done? And I really wanted my career to have more of an impact in the world. Um, in the mid-1990s, I sort of took a, a quick detour into the nonprofit world um, and also um, spent some time, a brief time, working in the public sector in sort of economic development. Um, and thought that was going to be the you know, solution. You know, I'd, I'd you know, take all my business knowledge and take it to the nonprofit or the public sector. Um, and I certainly loved the mission focus of the nonprofit sector in particular, um, but I felt very frustrated at the lack of the efficiency and the accountability and sort of the innovation that I saw at that time in the nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. And so really kind of was at this impasse and thought, gosh, you know, so, so how do I resolve this tension? I, you know, I love business, I love the power of business, but I really want to do good in the world. Um, and so, you know, it's around the early 2000s, you know, the dawn of a new millennium, and uh, it was certainly the dawn of a new career for me, and um, I was lucky enough to be able to take a, a sabbatical for a year. I quit my corporate job and was very clear I wanted to do something really quite different. I wasn't quite sure what that was going to be. Um, and it was around the time when there was a lot of corporate scandals happening. This was the time of Enron and WorldCom. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a real renewed interest in uh, what we might call 
you know, sort of corporate social responsibility or the uh, the intersection between business and, and society. It was also the time that the word social entrepreneurship was, was starting to, to emerge. People were very familiar with what entrepreneurship was, but it was sort of the, the dawn of the social entrepreneurship movement. Mm-hmm. And um, I was lucky enough to... Um, really sort of see a new path for myself um, in the academic world, um, you know, studying the kinds of companies that were both making money but also doing good, um, and also helping to, to educate a new generation of business leaders. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to be accepted into the doctoral program at Boston University at the School of Management. Mm-hmm. Um, I was and also lucky enough to study under a man called Jim Post, who is sort of one of the great management uh, scholars in in, in the sort of intersection of business and society. Um, and at the same time, I was also on the faculty at the Simmons School of Management. Um, and Simmons is a unique institution. It's been named by Aspen Institute as one of the uh, best schools in the world in terms of their incorporation of sort of sustainability and social issues into their curriculum. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I, I spent a number of years doing my, you know, doing my doctoral work and writing my dissertation, uh, which was called Socially Conscious Capitalism. Um, and, and teaching around those topics at Simmons. And then um, in the fall of last year, I was uh, honored to be invited to join the faculty at the Whittemore School of Business at UNH. And I've been here for the last year. Oh, it's fascinating to me. That's interesting about Simmons. I didn't know that, that factoid. It's one of those those colleges you hear about, and you hear there are a lot of ad- advertisements on NPR. <laughs> I mean, I don't know much about Simmons. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 a, you know, it's a unique, very unique school. It's a very small school and mm-hmm. um, you know part, I think part of uh, you know part of the ability uh, to incorporate sustainability and sort of social issues into the curriculum there part of that has come through the leadership that we've had at the school over the last decade or so um, but also um, it's a small school and it means that you can you know you can get things done fast you know right. or faster often in smaller schools right exactly so yeah. But you, you, so you've been at UNH for about about a year. Tell me, tell me, what was the intrigue in UNH? What is going on there at the business school that is um, that is meeting your needs to 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 with regard to this, you know, intersection of business and social entrepreneurship and yeah, sustainability? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was really um, intrigued when I, I read the job description at UNH. Um, you know, I've long been a big believer in public education. Um, I went to a public high school and really believe in in public education and really uh, endorse the mission of the land-grant um, institutions of higher education in the United States. Um, so I was excited to work in public education. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably today more than ever we need really good quality public institutes of higher education. Yep. Um, I was really intrigued um, by the fact that, that the Whittemore School really wanted to increase um, its work on sort of social and environmental issues. Um, and I was also really intrigued by sort of UNH's uh, track record and uh, characteristics in general. So uh, UNH has um, the Sustainability Institute, which um, is, a, is a campus-wide uh, initiative. It's the oldest endowed sustainability uh, program in the country at a public institution. Um, and they've been doing incredible work for the last 10 years, um, really greening the campus. Um, but they're now doing a lot of work, um, which is focusing on curriculum and research and really helping bring faculty together across the disciplines, across the humanities, across the sciences, across, you know, including obviously the business school and, and 
and, and really sort of trying to um, um, integrate these themes of sustainability um, very deeply uh, throughout the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very exciting to me, and, and it was just very exciting to me to, to be part of a big institution where I have colleagues now who are world-class you know, climatologists and world-class um, scholars in sustainable agriculture. And so for the work I do around sustainability and social entrepreneurship, having those kind of colleagues where I can do really interesting interdisciplinary work is, is very appealing to mm-hmm. me. So then you're working then quite directly with the Sustainability Institute coming from the B School then. Yes, yep. yes, yes. Okay. Um, and we also have a wonderful, another wonderful organization on campus, um, which is part of UNH's CASI Institute, um, and it's the Center on Social Innovation and Finance, um, mm. and they're doing you know, similar work on sort of in the worlds of uh, social innovation and economic development and social finance. Wow. So they're both groups, you know, for me as an academic, um, they're both groups that, you know, I, I really enjoy working with and, and partnering with. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a forthcoming publication called Business Models for People, Planet, and Profits, uh, exploring the phenomenon of social business, a market-based approach to social value creation. And in this, uh, you're exploring the process by which social businesses are designed, and you highlight the social purpose of for-profit entities that are traditionally associated with the nonprofit organizations. Tell us more about this. This is fascinating. Yeah, I was so, you know, I was very... um interested to explore businesses that were started with an explicit purpose to address some kind of social or environmental problem. Um, And it's not to diminish at all the work that major corporations uh, like Walmart are doing to really kind of green their operations. Um, That work is, you know, important and and valuable. Um, But it's uh, it's sort of a a change in the way that they do business. And it's it's really always going to be secondary to their primary purpose, which is to, you know, maximize their profits for their shareholders. I was really intrigued by a, a kind of a breed of, a new breed of organization, a kind of more of a hybrid organization, if you like, that I was seeing um, that, you know, was, was for profit, was a for profit company. It was very much part of the sort of market system, but it seemed very clear that their sort of hierarchy of sort of priorities was very different, that they came into being not to make money but to address some kind of social or environmental problem in the world. Mm-hmm. But they have a for-profit model, so they ultimately are making money. Yeah, and, you know, and, 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 there's, and there's so many different examples, and, you know, it's not always easy, easy to, you know, compare apples to oranges. But right. I think um, the, the companies that I, I study and that I work with, I think what sets them apart is that, you know, they they have sort of a primary purpose, you know, around social or environmental value creation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that and that social and environmental purpose is is at least equal to their purpose of of, of you know financial return. Mm-hmm. Um, in many in many cases, it's sort of uh, a higher priority than their than their financial return. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and they, uh, but they have chosen to be a sort of a market p- participant um, as opposed to 
let's say, a non-profit, right. because they actually see it's the most effective way to create the kind of change they're looking for in the world. Right, right. Well, I know we're going to talk about um, a, a couple examples, but but you also mentioned in, in your you know in your writings that the research out there and what you're doing now is different, really, from what's out there on the subject, and, and we'll, it would be fun to discuss that. But you, you also state that social entrepreneurship has been understudied in the academic world thus far. Is that tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, it's, it's getting more and more studied, which is which is the great news. You know, there's there's several major uh, high level academic research conferences now every year that focus on social entrepreneurship, and sure. we have some dedicated academic journals um, on the subject too. So it's it's becoming more and more uh, studied, which is the great news. I think the work that I'm doing, um, a lot of my work is qualitative, mm-hmm. and um, it's you know it's very much in the European tradition of uh, engaging very deeply with companies. I, I, there's a place for quantitative research, and I do that kind of research too sometimes. Um, but I think when you're dis- when you're uh, examining sort of a new phenomenon or an understudied phenomenon, and also a complex phenomenon, phenomenon. If you think about you know, this idea of social business. It's kind of it's a little bit of an oxymoron, uh, right? It's like you know, how can you really have a business that actually you know the social good? Um, people find that sort of almost a contradiction in terms. And so, and, and when you start thinking about it, it's like, well, how do you really? make sure that the promise of a social business can actually hold true. You know, how do you ensure that at some point the financial motive doesn't, you know, sort of supersede the, the environmental motive or the social motive? Right. So it's a very complex idea, and I, and I don't think you can study that well by doing quantitative research alone. I think you really need to engage deeply with founders, with leaders, with the companies, and study those companies over time to mm-hmm. really understand how you, you know, how you make that this, this phenomenon a reality. Mm-hmm. So my, my work, I think, is it's, it's different in that it, it's, um, it, it's deeper. You know, I, I spend a lot of time working over you know, many years often with companies, learning about how they, how they really make this work, and you know, some cases how it, you know, why it doesn't work. Sure. Um, and when you're speaking with these companies, are you um, are you speaking with the CEO? Are you speaking with the CFO? Or who who are you actually? Uh, are you talking to multiple people within a company? Or are you targeting just a select few? Yeah, no, it, it's really important to speak to a lot of different people, and I, I, I always try and speak to the founder because I think it's really interesting to understand kind of what the core concept mm-hmm. uh, was at, at, at inception. Um, you know, even if that person's already moved on, I'll often try and go back and, you know, find the person who was the founder. Oh, wow. um, but I think it's really important. You know, I, I definitely speak to the CEO. You know, I always try and speak to a board member if I can, and the CFO, because I think it's really this tension between making money and doing good. I really want to understand, yeah. you know, how that tension is managed in the social business. And so often the CFO or, a, you know, a board member can really speak to that very, uh, very well. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I try and go as deep as I can, you know, if I can, a uh, head of marketing, um, um, you know, a COO, mm-hmm. uh, you really understand how it plays out day to day, not just sort of in, you know, in the glossy brochures and on the website. Right, right. And did you come across companies, I know that when I've had this discussion with, with people about social entrepreneurship, the not the naysayers, but the sort of maybe just slight doubters say, well, you know, when, when push comes to shove and e- economics really does kick in and and companies just sell out and da 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 da. How do you respond to that when people say have that argument with you? 
Um, you know, I, I go back to the design, and this is why I'm, you know, interested in studying entrepreneurial organizations, often smaller ones, because I think the way that you avoid the conflict between the financial and the social, the environmental, is in the way that you design your sort of approach to the marketplace, the way that you design your business model mm. at inception. So if you, you know, if you're thoughtful about it, you can, you can, you can design out, you know, most on all of those tensions. Mm -hmm. But it takes that intentionality to really design a business model that can be adequately profitable, but it also, you know, creates good social and environmental value. Right. And so then if, then if the, um, if, if people do move on and new people come in, that's set up and it's such a fundamental part of the way the company is run that it's not questioned and not watered down as the years go by? Yeah, but it's, uh, yes, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's also that it's the nature of the, the value creation, mm -hmm. the social environmental piece, is happens as a result of the, the company's core product or service. So it's not a byproduct. It's not, you know, a CEO or a board saying, oh, let's be good guys this year and <laughs> donate some money to our profit. It's happening every single day. So, I, mean, I think one of the things I've learned over the years, Chrissy, is that when you talk to people, it's, it's hard to talk about it without examples. So if I may, I'm just going to inject no, an example. That would be wonderful. I think it makes it a little bit more tangible. Absolutely. Um, so there's a wonderful organization called Equal Exchange. They were the company that bought the idea of fair trade um, to America um, a couple of decades ago. And they you know, can remain one of the leading uh, sellers of fair, fairly traded coffee, teas, chocolates, and other consumer products. Mm -hmm. um, so that company was founded by a bunch of, you know, really wonderful radicals who were completely incensed by the economic inequities of sort of the agricultural business that you know basically that we as consumers you know have access to all this kind of cheap food but the farmers who grow that food for us are living below the poverty line especially when you look at um, farmers in, in uh, countries you know like Guatemala which is some of the big coffee growing areas of the world mm -hmm. and they you know they could have easily started a non-profit to sort of really you know protest and you know against against the the, the injustice and the way that farmers are treated in our in our increasingly sort of um, you know uh, corporate corporatized you know large agribusiness world, but instead they said no we, we want to start an organisation that proves that a different path is possible a path which really rewards small farmers you know in an appropriate way, um, and we want to sort of create this company that is a sort of demonstration vehicle that you you know you can be profitable but you can also treat farm as well. Mm -hmm. And so they created Equal Exchange, um, and, they, you know, and the way that they did that was basically by completely redesigning the, the sort of supply chain in the coffee industry. Um, they, they did what we call disintermediation. So um, if, you've ever, if you've ever looked at anything to do with the coffee industry, um, 
conventional coffee, the coffee industry, has you know many, many middlemen. Um, and of course, all those middlemen uh, want a share of the pie. Um, and the result being that the, you know, the small farmer who's at the very end of that chain, you know, gets left with very little. What Equal Exchange did is they really, you know, designed a new business model for the coffee industry, which was a this, you know, highly disintermediated value chain. They're sourcing directly from worker cooperatives in coffee growing regions, and they're getting it more, much more directly into the hands of consumers. And so, you know, consumers still pay the same price, um, but the farmer gets uh, a higher price for, for his product. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, a really good example of a you know company that you know is certainly adequately profitable. Um, but they, you know, through their core product, they're creating, you know, social justice every day. Right. It's not this either or. It's not a decision between should we do this or should we do that. The more coffee they sell, the more good they do for the small farmers. Right. How, all how, over the world. How did that? I wonder. I'm just curious about how that works when you when when the farmers are used to the middlemen and they're used to to working with certain people, and then they have a company come in and say, we're going to get rid of those people and and we're going to give you you know, a, a higher piece, you know, a bigger piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, how, I wonder how, do you, if you've had direct, you know, in your research, you know, just direct experience with that where, whereby they say, okay, we trust you and we actually trust that we are going to get a bigger piece of the pie and we, we want to get rid of the middleman who we already have a you know, prior relationship with. You know, I would assume that there are, a lot of them are comfortable with the way they've been doing business or, or perhaps not. How, how, how does that... Um. You know, my, 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 my sense is that the farmers say, hallelujah, right? Because I think in many of these industries, you know, you can look at the banana, equal exchanges recently kind of got into the banana industry. Mm. And, um, you know, and in many, many other industries in the world, you know, small producers know they get treated very badly. Um, there's often corruption. There's often... Um, you know, all kinds of bad things that go on and, and small farmers, you know, have no power and so they get treated very badly. Right. Um, so I think, I think for the most part, you know, farmers have been incredibly receptive to that. And, and I think what's important about the, the fair trade model in general, not just the way Equal Exchange does it, there's many other companies doing fair trade mm-hmm. today, is that they work with um, cooperatives. So they're working with organized, uh, organized uh, groups of small farmers in those coffee-growing areas, um, mm-hmm. and, and those groups have been you know, a strong governance and um, strong leadership. Okay. Okay. So there's they're not so the companies are. Um, you know, deal, not dealing specifically. I was going to ask about sort of the expediting of the process too, because if they have to go to each farmer and develop relationships, that's that's yeah, right. That wouldn't work, right? And that was really part of the way Equal Exchange kind of innovated around innovated around this business model about you know how do you really you know get you know a good quality product mm-hmm. at a, good, a decent price that consumers will want to buy and also get you know more money back to the farmer who's growing it. You know, it, it, again, it's this sort of innovation in the business model, which is, you know, we couldn't work with, you know, 3,000 small farmers. That just right. wouldn't be efficient. But instead, let's go and find those groups who have already kind of come together um, as, as cooperatives, as groups of farmers that we can work with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that was really integral to that, to the, to the model working. Oh, that's great. I know I remember being in college and Equal Exchange when it popped up and just being so excited about it. I know that you've also, one of your, um, one of your case studies is 
is uh, is preserve. And yes. we've had Eric Hudson, who's the founder on, on the show um, a while back. They're a local company um, just outside of Boston. It, maybe you could talk a little bit about them and your experience. Yeah, no, I'd love to. And, you know, you, I mean, I was looking through the list of some of the people you've had on, on the show, and uh, you, I think you've had you've had a lot of companies on the show that I would consider um, social businesses. They they may not say that, but <laughs> I, I certainly would. I mean, I think Preserve is certainly, and I'll talk about Preserve in a second. You know, I think Stonyfield Farm and yeah. the work that Gary Hirschberg has done. I mean, you know, he. His purpose in life wasn't, you know, have a yogurt company. His purpose right. in life and continues to be is to is to really get you know large consumer retail you know, converted to organic, and right. that's really his you know one of his driving purposes in life. And he's, <laughs> he's a strong believer in, in organic production, yep. and you know, saw Stony Sort of Farm as a, as a as a vehicle to demonstrate that that was you know viable, and possible. Right. Um, you've had you've had some other great companies like uh, Recycle Bank and uh, Practice. Green, yeah. Harvest Pack, Dell, Relay Rides, I mean, I think they're all companies who are examples of how through their core product and service, you know, they can make money, but they can also do a lot of good in the world. Right, right. Um, but yeah, Preserve, you know, Preserve's a wonderful company. Eric Hudson, who's the founder of that company, I think is a, is a, is a true visionary, um, not just around sort of environmental sustainability, but really around sort of what businesses, you know, can and should do in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I, you know, love about Preserve is that they, um, they're a for-profit company, um, but they make consumer products um, out of 100% recycled materials. It's just so brilliant, you know? It's it's, just, yeah, it's you know, I think Eric was really uh, inspired to do that because of his you know, 15 years ago or so when, you know, before he started the company, he was really saying that, you know, people were recycling a lot, but no one really knew where that stuff, you know, we put in our recycle bins every day. No one knew where that was going. Yeah. Um, and he saw a real opportunity to to make product out of, out of that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, you know, every time he sells a preserve chopping board or a bowl or a cup, you know, that's, that's you know, certainly helping make money for the company and the company's owners and shareholders, but it's also um, helping the planet, you know, one, one little, one little product at a time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating to me just, you know, going into the store after, after speaking with him and, you know, it's one of those things where everywhere, you know, at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's and you'd see the products and you'd see people buying them. You're like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's not, it's not easy. And I think this comes back to this, you know, this really clear intentionality that, you know, I want to design a company and a business model mm-hmm. that can do both, can make money and do good. Right, right. And, you know, it took Eric a long time. You know, you, you couldn't just walk in and say, hey, I'd like to, you to manufacture me, you know, these products out of recycled materials. Right. People weren't doing that. And so he had to really work uh, with um manufacturers to, you know, figure out, well, how do you actually do that, you know, and it turns out that you can know it's easy and the best way to do that is with number five recycled plastic, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and really work with those manufacturing companies to help them, you know, learn how to do that and get that, those those uh, practices established, you know, it's not, you can't just, it's not a cookie, cat, cookie cutter kind of approach. Right, right. You really have to be very intentional and, you know, there's often a lot of work, you know, for two or three, maybe even more years leading up to the formation of a company. That's right. You're doing something 
new and different that hasn't been done before. That's right. For those of you who are just tuning in, I'm speaking with Fiona Wilson. She's Assistant Professor of Strategy, Social Entrepreneurship, and Sustainability at the University of New Hampshire's Whittemore School of Business and Economics. And the other thing, um, you know, just to we can move on from preserve, but the other thing that was really fascinating when I when I spoke with Eric is how important design is. So in addition to designing his company the way he designed his company, the products themselves have a certainly an efficacy, high efficacy, you know, that they're you know, they work just as well as, as a regular traditional toothbrush, for instance. Mm-hmm. But they also are cool they have a cool factor and they're 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 designed you know, very, very Night. You, know, you want to buy one. You want to go exactly. in and buy a colander. You want to go in and buy a bowl. You want to buy one of their toothbrushes. And I think that that's just something that is so important. Um, you know, when you're when you're when you have a product, you know, that you're creating for, you know, your consumer, and you're thinking outside the box. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think price point is very important too. I sure. think you know, you know, many studies will show this that you know consumers want to make it. You know, want to make more conscious choices. But if you ask them to trade down on quality or to trade up on price, they often don't do it. You know, their intentions are good, but if you ask them to make those compromises on quality or price, they, they won't. Right, right. And so I think in the companies that are being successful, um, you know, equal, that was a very intentional decision going back to equal exchange. You mm-hmm. know, they, they, they could have put a price premium on their, their fair trade coffee, but instead they chose to price it parity with non-fair trade. Right, right. Because they saw that as the way to drive the biggest amount of um, of market share mm-hmm. and to get more people, you know, involved in fair trade. Right. Right. Well we have a couple we have a couple more minutes. I would love to um Get your get your ideas uh, on the whole field of social entrepreneurship now and where it's headed. And, and are you hopeful that corporations are increasingly getting it? I am. I am. Um, I think. I think small companies are uh, sort of paving the path and showing that some of these approaches are possible. Mm. Um, I think you know, some of the big challenges out there. Um, are around um, sort of governance and, and, and access to capital. Um, you know, most of the companies I study are privately held companies. They're not publicly traded. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's you know much much harder for for companies to do the kinds of things we've been talking about mm-hmm. if they have the pressure of the external markets. Um, and and they certainly need certainly need more. You know what we're calling sort of patient, socially inclined capital. We need we, know, we need more investors who really want to support these kinds of companies who both make money but also do good. And there's you know, there's, a, there's a growing pool of, of, of capital, investment capital around that, but it still needs to be much much bigger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know I do think companies are getting it. Um, you know I think uh, you've probably talked on your program before about the whole movement around B Corporation. Yep. Um, and you know, I think we're seeing you know incredible growth in the number of um, both certified B Corps, um, but also um, California. You know, last year passed legislation so that you know now when companies are, are incorporating, they can choose to be a for profit or a non profit, or they can choose to be a B corporation, mm-hmm. which you know, permanently enshrines in their articles of incorporation um, the not just the ability to sort of consider. 
old school bottom lines, but actually requires those companies to consider financial, social, and environmental mm-hmm. bottom lines. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think we're making really good progress. I'm, I'm very excited. Wow. Well, it has been fabulous to have you with us today. Um, I look forward to meeting you in person since we're, we're right up the road from each other. So I'm sure we'll be doing so soon. So thank you for your time. Definitely. I look forward to that too. Thanks so much, Chrissy. <laughs> okay. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com.